Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast series, where we aim to explore the stories behind education research and practice as part of the multi-country research on improving systems of education endeavour funded by UK Aid, Australian Aid and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Hello, my name is Yue Yihua. I'm a research fellow at the RISE program, where I focus on synthesizing research on teachers and management. Today, I'm speaking with Joan De Jager and Wu Dao, who are both at the University of Minnesota, where Joan is a professor of organizational leadership, policy and development, and Wu is a PhD student in comparative and international development education. Wu is also a former teacher in Vietnam herself, which is relevant because today we'll be discussing a qualitative video study of Vietnamese classrooms that Joan and Wu were involved in. Among the things we'll be discussing today are some of the challenges, but the really big benefits of doing very detailed qualitative analysis of what really happens in classrooms, along with some of the practical and policy implications of that. Joan Wu, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the RISE podcast. In your qualitative video study, you look broadly at teachers' pedagogical practices, but you have at least two quite distinct and different areas within that, right? So you have how teacher practices support student learning competencies and also how teacher practices and beliefs reinforce learning inequities between students of different ethnic backgrounds. So can you talk a bit about sort of where these two focus areas came from? So first, overall, the RISE research program in Vietnam is to try and understand how Vietnam's education system produces good learning outcomes. So one of our aims is to actually examine those teaching practices in the classroom for the ways that learning is produced. And of course, we're looking at learning beyond just what is considered test scores outcomes. We want to understand particularly the current reforms that are focused on competency-based learning, um, meaning that the, the current uh, reforms in Vietnam are trying to shift both the curriculum and the pedagogy to focus on sort of competency outcomes, things like communication, creative thinking. And so the learning outcomes we're examining are not only those test outcomes, but what students are actually doing in the classroom. So we're analyzing the study for that. But while we have been analyzing that, we found some really interesting findings related to teaching and learning outcomes in the classrooms. And that was that these inequities actually exist between how teachers teach in classrooms that are mostly kin majority versus those that are more composed of different ethnic groups. Um, and certain ethnic groups in Vietnam have long had um, less schooling and um, less completion in schooling, but there's been less concern around um, and less research done around how teachers actually teach in the classroom. Um, so this was another analysis that we undertook for a paper that was recently published in Compare. That's great. And we'll put the link to the paper in the show notes for anyone who's interested in that. So some of the findings in your study, so that say some Vietnamese teachers don't actually use pedagogical practices that support some of the competencies that you're describing, um, and also that there are deeply entrenched inequities between um, kin majority and minoritized ethnic groups. Um, some of these might surprise people who are only familiar with the 
shiny newspaper headlines and graphs showing, oh, Vietnam overperforms in PISA relative to its GDP so much. Um, so to outsiders, I think a lot of this is surprising. But to what extent do you think people within Vietnam's education system would be surprised by this? Um, thank you for the question, Yi. Um, you're right that if we look at PISA data, uh, Vietnam is an outlier. Vietnamese students score better than students from wealthier countries. But other reports, such as report in 2018 from the Young Lives data, shows that there is still gap in math scores and language score between king majority students and ethnic minority students. And so it's undeniable that the Vietnam government policy relating to ethnic minority students show improvement, as uh, Professor Jechege said, that um, improvement in education attendance and, uh, and achievement. But there's still a question about how quality and equity learning happen in classrooms that have ethnic minority students. So in our paper, we show that in such classrooms, teachers' beliefs and the way they use hegemonic curriculum and instructional practices produce different learning outcomes for ethnic, ethnic minority students as compared to king majority students. So yes, I think the paper would be a surprise to people in the education system in Vietnam because you know, teachers' belief and expectation for students and how their beliefs affect um, their instructional practices haven't been widely discussed, both in public or in research on Vietnam education. Well, it's not a new research topic in literature. So I think it's a topic that should be paid more attention in, uh, to in research on Vietnam education. Yeah, thank you very much for that, Wu. And that's such a good reminder that things are often a lot more complex than they look on the surface. Uh, and so would, would either of you have any thoughts um, about how to bring in some of these sort of below the surface complications and nuance and granularity um, that actually comparative education is really good at? Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts about how to bring some of this granularity into sort of the public version of international education awareness? Whether like idealistic thoughts are really practical ones. So Yue, thanks for the question. Um, I think that it's important to recognize that policymakers, both in government as well as uh, those working in international organizations and donors, are really responsive to these bigger narratives that they can sort of grasp easily and that they want to be able to respond to problems at scale. So for example, a problem like um, who, completion at grade nine, that's not difficult to kind of grasp. We can see it easily in the quantitative data, what percentage complete, what don't. But it's more nuanced to look at who actually completes and who doesn't. So for example, in Vietnam, Completion at grade nine actually is an issue for some ethnic minority groups. Um, but the data in Vietnam actually show um, or are generally collected and looked at who belongs to an ethnic minority group and who belongs to the majority group. Mm. And overall, if you look at all 54 groups within the ethnic minority group, you can sort of um, lose some of the detail around who's not completing grade nine, because there's lots of variation between those ethnic minority groups. So some people within the ethnic minority groups, like the um, Hua, uh, 
or other other groups might actually do quite well with um, completion of grade nine and even in learning outcomes. And other groups like the Hmong, for example, we know, or Khmer may not do as well. So we actually need to dissect that data around ethnic minority groups um, to really look at what's happening in these diverse schools and classrooms. So I think international organizations and researchers are really remiss if we don't actually look at some of these outliers or the nuances in the educational system around what kind of learning it's producing for whom. And so I think we need to ask, how can we actually achieve education and equity for all if we don't actually look at all of these issues? No, that makes a lot of sense. And this is slightly tangential, but it strikes me as interesting that similar conversations are happening in other areas of public interest, right? Like say with COVID transmission, it's not just the average, but the distribution of infection rates across age groups, say, or with um, conversations about Asian Americans and how once you disaggregate the data, there's actually a lot of variation there that should affect how people understand issues and act. Um, so maybe in an ideal world, we'll see a shift toward greater public statistical literacy and also greater interest in the narratives underlying those patterns. But as I said, that is a tangent. Um, another thing I wanted to ask is that, so in my role in synthesizing RISE research on teachers and management, one area I've been thinking about a lot recently is about norms within teacher practice. So by norms, I mean things like sort of dominant perceptions about what good teachers do or shouldn't do, um, what should be prioritized in classrooms. And sometimes these are explicitly articulated, um, but sometimes they're tacit and people don't even realize that they're there necessarily. Like you said about some of the perceptions that kin majority teachers hold about minoritized, minoritized student groups or in your other study on um, higher and lower performing classrooms, if I remember correctly, you found that teachers in these classrooms tend sometimes have different beliefs about how children learn how to think and learn how to think about their thinking. Um, so could I ask you to speculate a bit about um, where these perceptions and beliefs, um, why, why they're so sticky? why they can become so widespread and so durable, and also what it would take to shift them toward more constructive beliefs. Yeah, uh, I will talk about our paper about ethnic minority um, students first. So in our, our paper, we partly discussed the reason why teachers hold such beliefs about ethnic minority students' cognitive level. Um, first, I think uh, stereotype about ethnic minority people in general uh, still persist in the society, where social hierarchies dominate almost all social relations, and where a lack of appreciation for diversity and pluralism is still manifest. And stereotypes uh, even exist in the discourse of policy. Professor Dicharye uh, actually has a paper on how ethnic minority people are discursively framed as lower status than the majority group in policy in Vietnam. Secondly, I think Vietnamese teachers have been trained and trained really well to follow hegemonic curriculum and hence that affects their belief. And uh, this study and past research show how beliefs of social prejudice are perpetuated in a way that even ethnic minority teachers 
internalize and use them unintentionally. I can, I'd like to add here briefly that um, you asked about how we might begin to shift these towards more constructive norms. And as Vu said, you know, these, these norms are long and enduring, as they are in any society. Um, it's not just Vietnam. But in a recent think piece that we're working on right now, one way we talk about shifting these norms is trying to have more open dialogues, which doesn't actually occur very frequently within the Vietnamese society among, say, policymakers and teachers themselves. And I think there's a need um, for teachers to be able to actually ask questions and not feel penalized for asking a question or not feel like they are being watched or could have some sort of retribution if they ask a question around, well, maybe we're not doing so well in terms of our learning for these groups of students. And what should we be doing? What does learning look like for these different members of society? So actually having those kinds of open dialogues would allow for teachers to think more critically about their own practice, as well as help shape new norms and help encourage a conversation with others about what to do differently. That's that's really exciting. And I mean, I exciting to me both on a sort of analytical level and also on a personal level, because um, as you know, I come from Malaysia, which is probably at least as hierarchical as Vietnam. And when I was a teacher in the civil service, the standard civil service sign-off in an official letter is Saya Yang Menurut Berinta, which translates to I who follow orders. Um, and as teachers, there are certain sensitive topics about politics and religion that you're just not supposed to talk about. So if Vietnam can have dialogues like this, uh, I would be really excited to see whether they can translate to Malaysia. Um, one more thing that I would like to add is that um, there should train teacher students about socially inclusive pedagogy, you know, how to teach, how to support and encourage ethnic minority students without minoritizing them. And the last thing is that curriculum should be more inclusive and engaging with culture and knowledge of different ethnicities, not just like majority groups. Another thing I wanted to ask you was that, so video studies are just notoriously labor intensive to code, to analyze. I know people who chose their PhD dissertation topics based on whether or not they have to do video study analysis or not. So from your perspective, um, what made it worthwhile putting in all of those hours of like observation and data preparation and analysis? Okay, um, I can um, answer this question. Uh, quantitative research can do many great things, right? But there are aspects that only qualitative approach is able to provide uh, deep understanding. For example, from quantitative survey, we would know that the instructional activity that teachers use most was group work, for example. But uh, how do we know how such activity happened in class? How much students engage and participate in the lesson? Uh, what kind of learning happened during the activities? What teachers' attention and when using when they use group work and whether they achieve the objective that they plan for for group work? So such questions can only be answered by deep analysis from qualitative 
video study and interviews. And qualitative video study also provides like different data points that show how different teaching practices interact with each other in class. So I think qualitative study has the advantage of accurately portraying the reality of teaching in its natural setting, which cannot be attained in studies, you know, largely ad adopting quantitative research methods. So I just want to add that you pointed out the amount of time or labor intensiveness. Yes, it is labor intensive to code and analyze. And we have hundreds of videos um, as well as interviews with teachers and principals and even students. Um, but all data analysis eventually takes a lot of time. Quantitative does too. So does qualitative. It just takes a lot of time to code it. But I think Vu pointed out a really important point, and that's, you know, what's the what's the additive element that we can get from the qualitative or the quantitative? And I think what's also interesting here is to point out that Vu is actually coding or will be coding some of our video data quantitatively using things like class or teach. And we're also coding and analyzing qualitatively um, because there is this real question from our quantitative analysis, which is when they've done the quantitative analysis at the primary level and even the secondary, there aren't a lot of variables that actually explain what are some of the differences in learning. Um, and so then the question becomes, are we actually measuring what really matters? And can we even measure in quantitative ways what matters? So even when we're quantitatively analyzing, as Vu'u said, things like the kind of teacher activities in the classroom, we can say one thing. Whether it's explanatory enough is another question, because when we look qualitatively, we can say a lot more about the type of group work, as Vu'u was saying. Um, so I think that's why it's also really important to think about the additive value of qualitative data. It seems also to me that there's almost an exact parallel between what you've been saying about research and what some of the things, other things within RISE we've been saying about accountability, like how accountability in the sense of accounting, like keeping track of numbers, um, is important for to ensure sort of baseline standardization. Like teachers need to show up in class, but that's the baseline. But then you really need to go into sort of thicker context-specific narrative accounts to know if the really multidimensional aspects of education that people value are actually happening or not, to know the justifications for choices in the moment in the classroom. That's a really good point, actually. For this project, this massive many-houred project, you worked closely with colleagues at the Vietnam National Institute of Education Sciences. Um, and I'd be curious to hear about some of the benefits and challenges of this sort of collaboration, um, as well as any tips you might have for facilitating this sort of collaboration. Well, that's a really good question. And um, I'm going to say something I think that might be quite obvious, but, but we don't also think about um, or maybe put into practice, and that is collaborations really take time to build trust, um, to understand the needs as well as the strengths of different researchers and institutions. So I started working with the VINICE, the Vietnam National Institute for Education Sciences, back in 2000 and 
six actually on a different research project and have worked with them on and off over the years. So um, it's, and when we started working with them again for this RISE project, they had known my prior work with them and there was some element of relationship and trust. And I think that's really critical, especially in the context of the Vietnamese uh, society where they really want to have ownership of their own work. Um, and, I, and so having these sort of outside funded projects um, really need to actually be internally owned. Um, the other thing is I think that a benefit of our research is that it's better informed than by the Vietnamese policymakers and educators' perspectives because we work with them so closely. And hopefully it means that some of our research can be taken up differently and used by them, although that's also always a question when we have outside research, um, in, especially in the Vietnamese context. I think for some benefit from the collaboration for the RISE project is that the Venice staff, uh, they are very familiar with uh, working with teachers and they have a wide connection with schools, which is an advantage for data collection. And um, for their benefit, um, I like Professor DeCherry's idea about giving back, meaning training this study provide opportunities for them to be trained in doing qualitative research. So we've been organizing training on research ethics, uh, data collection, how to use software to code data, and how to analyze data. Um, and uh, we hope to turn our finding back to school to benefit our participants at school. Um, some tips about uh, collaborations. I think like we should communicate clearly the purpose of the study. So team members know what, what they will be doing and why they do it. And communication is key, you know. And we, we often organize team meetings to address any concern that our team members have during the um, data collection process and analyzing and everything. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's all great to hear. And I think I also remember one of our RISE fellows, um, Jana Likutza, talking a bit about the research policy connection. Of course, she was talking about researchers sort of parachuting in to government and to schools and just talking to the stakeholders on the ground at the point when hey, well, you let us into our schools, then they parachute in again at the end to be like, okay, this is what we found. So it's exciting and encouraging to hear that um, in this project, you've really made a point to maintain the connections along the way and to help build capacity as part of that process. So our very last question is, what is one thing you wish that other people knew about the education system in Vietnam? Well, I would like to say that um the education system in Vietnam is not as outstanding or successful as people may think when they look at international assessment report. Because as you see, Vietnam still has so many things to do for better learning and teaching and closing educational gaps between ethnic cities. However, um, it's not as harmless as many Vietnamese people may think. Because through our analysis, we can see that teachers attempt to innovate their teaching practices. We can see that they try to move towards more active learning. They try to teach metacognition and encourage students to co-construct knowledge. So we definitely see some very positive side from our analysis. 
I would want to add that I think one of the things I find interesting and fascinating, and I wish we could explore more in um, this study, is the attention that the system gives to what they call sort of ethics and aesthetics. These are two actually competencies that they want young people to acquire. And I just think, um, and this isn't only found in the Vietnamese system, but we also know that these kinds of issues get lost in a lot of other school systems. And quite frankly, I think they also get lost in Vietnam as well when the pressure is on, the, uh, on teaching language and math um, to perform particularly on the tests because that's what's tested. Ethics and aesthetics are not. Um, but I do find the way that they've thought about it and the way that they try to incorporate it through the different subject areas is very fascinating. And I think we have something to learn from that as well. Thank you for those two lovely notes to end on from Vu that there's still a lot of challenge, but also lots of rays of hope. And from Joan that the learning should go from the south to the north as well and that other systems have a lot to learn from Vietnam and not just about the high PISA scores that other people see on the surface. So thank you very much to both of you. It's been a pleasure. I have learned a lot. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. We've really enjoyed being able to talk about this RISE research study and the qualitative component of it. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at riseprogram. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.